Hi, everyone. Welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to this year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rurkraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And today we're excited to share our interview with the production designer for Nightmare Alley, Tamara Devorell. This was a really fun interview. It was so lovely to talk to her about her work on Nightmare Alley, especially because we had our interview the day she got her nomination from the Art Directors Guild. So just some more information about her career. Over the past 30 years, Tamara has transported audiences in numerous film and television projects as set designer, art director, and production designer, including David Cronenberg's Existence, X-Men, Degrassi, Still Mine, Suits, and Star Trek Discovery. She thrives in sci-fi and historical worlds and has been a longtime collaborator with Guillermo del Toro, also having worked on Mimic, The Strain, a TV show he produced, and the upcoming Netflix series he created, Cabinet of Curiosities. We enjoyed getting to speak with her about her Critics' Choice, Set Decorator Society, and Art Directors Guild nominated work in Nightmare Alley. Enjoy! What year are we in? 1941. What day is today? (laughs) Wednesday, I think. Very well. As briefly as you can. Can you read minds? Come on in and behold the mysteries of the universe. I want to give you the world and everything in it. What are you talking about? We got a little mind reading show. There's a woman, Abigail. Oh, God. Teach me. Teach you. Everybody has some shadow from their past. Oh, you're trouble, ain't you? What if I told you I'd get my hands on a two-person act for us? <laughs> what is the object being held? A pocket watch. Am I correct? Master Stanton, can you kindly name them? What's inside the bag? A small pistol. You're not as hard to read as you think. You run a racket, same as me. If you help me, we can make quite a big dent in this town. You barely know me. Oh, I know. You're no good. And I know that because neither am I. This is not a carnival trick. If your foot slips, we both fall. We've had our share of snake charmers in the past. We deal with them. What did you do, Stan? Why did you do that? Sometimes you don't see the line until you cross it. You don't fool people, Stan. They fool themselves. So first off, thank you so much for being here with us and congratulations on your nominations from the Critics' Choice Awards, the Set Decorator Society of America, and from the Art Directors Guild this morning. We are very excited to see that nomination for you. Thank you. And I think just to start off, so Nightmare Alley, it's adapted from the William Lindsay Gresham novel and the 1947 film. Were there particular details from the book or the 47 film that you were inspired by or wanted to include? And did you have any other sources of inspiration for creating the look of the film? In terms of the 
film. We watched it and, you know, and Guillermo said, watch it and then don't think about it too much. I tried initially to do a few little nods to the movie, you know, around Xena's, um, Xena's sort of stage area in particular, you know, there was some Egyptian, Egyptian figures, I guess, figures on either side. And I put those in originally and, and it just sort of progressed and we went a different route. Um, and I don't think Guillermo really wanted us to draw mm-hmm. that much from the film. More the novel, which I, of course, read at his behest. I think all the department heads read it. It was very dense. Um, it gave a lot of background. And then I kind of just did my own thing with Guillermo. Like, you know, like I know what Guillermo is looking for in, in terms of, of the design. And, and I like to work with that. He's a very visual person, of course. So, uh, you know, mm-hmm. but like, I think it, the novel gave me certain a certain feel for the characters, um, a depth. And, and then Guillermo also wrote um, backgrounds for a lot of the characters, which he does, which was amazing. It's just like brings detail to the sets that are inspirational, you know, where he says like Molly had like old letters or shoes or chocolates or, you know, old, um, you know, stickers that women used to collect in the 20s and 30s, young women. Um, so we did a lot of detail there, which you don't necessarily see, but it was there and made it pleasurable for us, for sure. I mean, I felt very, watching the movie, to be honest, I felt it, it felt very claustrophobic. I wasn't sure where they shot the carnival, for example. And certainly Lilith's office compared to our Lilith's office was like a little tiny box. And our Lilith's office was this like giant long train car of a thing, you know, with our sort of alley theme with all the sets. Everything mm-hmm. was very long and narrow. Um so, um, yeah, so I, I think, I, I'm not even sure they shot the carnival outside on that. They may have shot it in a studio. It was so tight. It was so restrictive. And so when we were, when I was starting to think about the carnival, it was very much something we were going to do as real as possible outside, um, see what we could get in terms of, we got, we got the little Ferris wheel, a real 20s Ferris wheel um, that goes around Canada and the States. It still tours. It still works. comes with its own crew. Uh, you know, we had to do a little bit of work. We found a carousel that we had to do a fair bit of work on. But, you know, we found some uh, little go-karts, <laughs> little go-kart things. Uh, we found those and we rebuilt those. and We built a go-kart station. And, uh, and everything else was actually built. But at least we, we were out in a field and we wanted it to be very real. We wanted the audience to feel like they were in a carnival in the 1930s and, and enhance it in the way that we like to, uh, you know, with Guillermo's sort of style of, you know, rich colors and color tones. Although we did talk about doing it black and white at some point at the very beginning. And he's since done a black and white uh, version, which I'm excited to see. I haven't seen it yet. But yeah. So you mentioned all of these details, these intricately designed sets. When you're starting a film, when you're talking with Guillermo, how do you decide when to build from scratch or if a location can be repurposed based on what that vision is? It's funny because I'm, I'm kind of thinking about a possible next project with Guillermo and I'm right at that stage of like, oh, what, what would I recommend building and what would I recommend being on location? I think it was... I mean, obviously, the carnival—a 1930s carnival—doesn't just come out of nowhere. So that was always going to be a build, and there was no question. Um, we hemmed and hawed with other things. We we looked at a lot of locations that we could have shot. Zena's bungalow. We ended up building it. There was a lot of stuff. You know, so much of it's dictated about how much you're in there and how much control you want. Do you want it raining? And you know, like in Zena's bungalow, it's raining outside. It's you know, we built the outside next to the carnival because Guillermo wanted that physical reality of that relationship where you see the entrance of the carnival and there's Zena's bungalow across the way, and that real relationship was important to him for staging. 
and the inside being on stage is just you know uh convenient to us and to the actors um you know that was a kind of an obvious one we had bradley cooper in a bathtub naked like we're gonna go to some you know period house and finding one that's exactly what we want you know like for zena's bungalow that now that i'm talking about it you know we had many many uh discussions about the ceiling height to the point where we brought it really low because Guillermo really wanted to feel this tongue and groove ceiling that we did and you know historically old period buildings very much had low ceilings and i liked it but i was very nervous i made them i made them i mean dan lauston and guillermo our dp dan lauston come and stand under a flat we put in the studio before we built it i said okay this high you guys like i was like you know starting to maybe piss guillermo off a bit but i just want to be sure because it's a it's a commitment to build a ceiling that low but I, I mean, it's something that uh, Guillermo embraces that, you know, he's always wanting to bring the ceiling into the picture. He wants to, you know, for a production designer, it's a dream. He wants to see the scenery. So like another sort of ceiling story, now that I'm talking about ceilings in the show was when we shot at the Carlu, which was our Copacabana club. And it's a beautifully restored um, period art deco uh, interior in Toronto um, that we had the the opportunity to shoot in that we had used before in the strain um and i had kind of built a version of it and uh, the problem the, there was a big issue for it yerma wanted to build it and it was a, an enormous build uh because he wanted the ceiling to be in the shot and it's this beautiful circular ceiling and um and when i built it for the strain and which was also repurposed in the shape of water as a as a russian restaurant i believe you know, I brought the ceiling way down and I had that opportunity to, I had the opportunity to do that because we were building it um, and made it, it was a much smaller build, uh, you know, but it was inspired by this place, this car. Mm-hmm. So I, so I proposed to give, I didn't know what else to do. I proposed that we bring the actors up to the ceiling. So we ended up building this large wedding cake tiered platform for them to play on, um, you know, that was all very shiny and, and put, it put Stan on a podium. So it played with his character and his rise to fame and all of that kind of thing. So that was another me trying to accommodate Guillermo's need to see the ceiling. And that it, it worked to a certain extent with kudos to Dan Lauschen, our DP, who did all the amazing camera work to mm-hmm. bring it all together. Oh, that's great. And I think what's really cool about this film is that you really feel that it flows between these two distinct worlds. You have the first set being at the carnival and then the second part you have these stunning interior spaces in this art deco buffalo i love the art deco look so i thought that was really cool i think if you could just talk about like how you went about doing research for designing this space since it is a period piece Mm -hmm. um you could talk about any of the details really i know you touched on some already you know, it's funny for the carnival, I forget some of the, some of the, you know, it was a while ago now, and I forget some of the uh, references we had from the carnival, but we did a direct riff on um, a carnival set in Strangers on a Train, which is a Hitchcock movie. And we had pretty much designed the carnival. We were almost at the tail end of it. I had an entrance, which was banners, uh, which we used, but we, we removed them and put them elsewhere. We put them beside Zena's bungalow. But the, sort of the 11th hour, Guillermo said, we need to do this strangers of the, on a train neon entrance. And he sent me a picture. He'd been watching it one night and I was like, okay, wow. And we'd also been like on a pandemic break. So there was a few things that happened over the pandemic. Like Guillermo watched a lot of old Hitchcock um, film noir movies. That one's from 1951. 
And I said, okay, like, do you want it? Like, okay, so we're not going to put the same neon signs. We had 10 big shows, I think on Strangers on a Train. It's something like Craft and 20 big shows or something. And he just, he actually almost wanted it copied and uh, do a real homage to Hitchcock. So, you know, different references came, getting back to the whole idea of research, different research and references came from all over the place. You know, we were digging around in banners endlessly, like banners, you know, I have a book on Carnival and circus, you know, freak show uh, banners that I've had for years. I've been fascinated with them and we bought some banners in the art department so we could look at them and, one of our guys in the art department took him a couple of weeks, but he, he got this talent for making the banners. One, Andy Sang, one of our main um, concept graphic guys. And he was fantastic. And he sort of did like the bulk of them. And Guy Davis, who's Guillermo's regular concept illustrator, did a lot of them. But we really had to learn how to do them. It wasn't something that was just, oh, okay, we can buy this stock image, which sometimes we do in the art department, and put it in and use it for a poster. This was all like we had to make everyone. They had to relate to the characters. Zenas had to be Zenas. Electras had to be Electras. So it was a lot of conceptualizing and just finding bits and pieces. For the Art Deco stuff, it was, it was like my schizophrenia, my left brain, right brain. You know, I had to, you know, I was really literally like working on two movies at the same time. Um, for the Art Deco stuff, I mean, that was really just my, I mean, my love of Art Deco, I guess, you know, I started researching it. We went everywhere. And, you know, again, every once in a while, Guillermo would send something. He sent the, um, it's the Eastern Building. I can't remember. It's called the Capital Eastern Building, I think, in L.A. was one of the references that for the exterior of that building, which is this incredible Art Deco building. We brought elements of that into the interior of Grindel's office, which was a stage that we built. And, you know, like it was little little bits and pieces everywhere. For Lilith, I was very specific to the idea of wood. And I was looking at Eltham Palace, which is in England, which is all uh, wood, which is unusual in Art Deco to find wood. And then this um, wild war study in the Brooklyn Museum, which I've been a fan of for many, many years. And I go to Brooklyn often. I go in and look at this little Art Deco. It's behind glass. And I press my head up against it and go, wow, this room's perfect. You know, it's about... <laughs> one eighth the size of what we built. But, you know, I showed those to Guillermo, especially the, the wild work at study, which was, you know, European designers. So it had this like, classy, you know, woman of the world kind of feel and the wood was very feminine. And it had these Rorschach uh, veneers where you bookend the veneers. Our carpenters actually like we would carefully do it and select them and go, oh my God, this looks like a Rorschach and put them up. And we actually changed a couple in the, in Lilith's office to, to get something that we liked better, you know, some, some were sort of, they weren't working and we sort of it was painful carpentry everything in that <laughs> office was painful carpentry and I was lucky to have a, a great team of carpenters you know there were safes that opened and things you know and when you have somebody like Kate Blanchett playing this incredible character who moves like a cat through it like a dancing like a like a dancer you know and she's opening these things and I mean I was like every day I go five times and open and close the mask they're not smooth enough yet guys get out <laughs> the you know sand or sand them smoother so um yeah that was a real labor of love anyways you know something you know some influences and some of the research you do they just come out of nowhere and you're just like wow oh that's a i was looking at a modern uh deco styled house in the wormhole that i found the wormhole of the internet that i found that's in hong kong with the curved glass and i was inspired by that for grindles because guillermo had this very this very specific 
view he wanted of Grindel's with curved glass, very hard to do. And I, I always find having some actual references to look at with the set designers that are concrete, that something that somebody actually built already, especially when you're doing a period piece, is really essential. And this was not even a period piece, but it looked like it, you know, it looked like Art Deco and they, de- they styled it after Art Deco and Art Deco is kind of timeless. So there's a, you know, there, there's a way to get really modern looks in there. Um, and yeah, I love Art Deco. Who doesn't? <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, it's just stunning no matter what. And I love that you brought up Lilith's office. That was definitely my favorite set in the movie. Seeing Kate Blanchett in that space, you just feel like she fits perfectly. You completely understand that character. I love the dark wood, those reflective floors. Yeah, we were we weren't gonna do um we were gonna do carpeted floors and uh which was very sort of standard fare for Art Deco. A lot of those Art Deco offices would have been carpeted. Like it was like cutting edge. You you do a wall to wall or almost wall to wall carpet. And we even ordered the carpet. It was, and it went back and forth with us. And I said, listen, we're going to lay down real marble regardless, which is, I know it sounds extravagant, but actually it's in many ways, it's cheaper to get real marble and have it look that good when you know that actors are going to be right close up right on the real marble mm-hmm. and having our scenic artists who are amazing, but paint all that marble. Cause you know, we do a bit of both sometimes. And um, yeah, in the end we, you know, it was like, you know, do we want this amount of reflection? Do we want, you know, and to me it was like, I could hear the click click of, of Kate Blanchett as Lilith's heels in her thirties, 1940s look. And that was kind of a driving force for me. And then, you know, Dan Lauschen, um, who's a master cinematographer, he could deal with those, those, you know, on a floor like that. He could deal with the shine and the reflections and embrace it and embrace the skylight that we put in this giant skylight, which made kind of no sense, but who cares because... No, it looked good, and that and it allowed Dan to change the mood as the as the story progressed, which I thought he did really masterfully. Just you know, using the skylight for different lighting as it got more film noiry as their scenes progressed. Um, yeah, you've already touched on costumes on working with Dan quite a bit. How did you work with other departments as well in accomplishing this alley motif? I feel like in almost every shot, you get these very long, long yeah. sets, this deep focus and lots of intricacies with the details from the carnival you have these lights that just seem to go on and on and you talked about the office and you know actual alleys that happen so well i even like i mean working with locations for example you know we found the train yard where stan's running and i was like we need we need to move all the trains around which is not an easy feat we had a very old grouchy guy who ran it was a train museum actually ran a museum who's like okay you guys, we're going to move this once. I like we had to work with this guy for days and days, but we wanted this long alley, so we, you know, we parked the train cars that way. You know, so again, great location guys who put up with with all our persnickety demands of uh, this train has to be actually right here, and then pray that Guillermo doesn't decide to change it because you can't. It's not like a set where you can move furniture around and you can't change <laughs> these trains. And we were doing drone shots and running over to the where they were shooting and showing Guillermo I was like last chance Guillermo last chance Dan this is where the trains are going I was filming my my art department art directors running through the train you know sending them off um and, you know I the set decoration uh, by Shane View is amazing I it was my first time working with Shane I've, I've known about him and him and his team are phenomenal like he found 
Art Deco furniture like nobody's business, you know, Art Deco furniture from Philadelphia, from Cincinnati, from Montreal, from New York, from like, you know, London. He was looking everywhere and we just found some gems. And, and you know, I worked closely with him and he also works closely with Lewis. Like there isn't a, a Lewis, our costume designer, there isn't a swatch of fabric that we don't show Guillermo and Lewis and Dan, like for the, the windows and the curtains and show the lighting guys and do tests. You know, it's, we've all worked together before. Like, I, I mean, I, I worked on Mimic when I was art directing with Dan and uh, Guillermo a zillion years ago. So I know what, you know, I know what Dan's style is. Now I really know after having done Nightmare Alley, like he really looks and listens and is involved from the very beginning of like color palettes and framing and composition and, you know, works really tirelessly with, with Guillermo and gets Guillermo and um, yeah. And, and so great sec deck team, amazing. Um, Chris Gage and the props team were phenomenal too. And he, Chris Gage, I think is one of the masters of props. Like he will really like, dig deep and do you know he'll do his own research he'll he'll find his own things he has to work with guillermo who's off buying stuff literally on ebay oh I, chris i found a great razor he buys a straight edge razor but he uses and you know like like i mean it, it's kind of fun you know because it's like a little bit i don't want to sound corny but you know you're sort of part of a mm-hmm. family but chris had some very challenging props to create like the lie detector which of course we had to conceptualize uh and and draw up and build and and everything had to work on that like i was so it was nerve-wracking when i first saw that prop i went to the prop house with our with chris Kagi and i was just blown away by what they had done i was i was super pleased amazing yeah i mean great team everybody you know from the grips to the lighting guys who i'm continuing to work with my call our our gaffer you know really just the just the smoothest, cool, cucumber. <laughs> Nothing can set them on edge. Uh, and also, like we had, we had sculpted so much. I had a number of amazing sculptors on the show, and painters, and carpenters. Like you know, you just uh, you kind of get these people that are so de- dedicated to the craft. I lose sight of their t- their extreme talents. <laughs> you know, you just oh my god, you're you're gonna carve this giant devil head and make it work. And our special effects guys who have to make everything move up and down. Um, they're also an awesome team. So big eyeball in the mm-hmm. fun house that we had to make. Okay, I, I like, love that. You, that. you know, like we made this concept and was like, you know, the spinning barrel was like, okay, that was, that was easy. Cause you, we've mm-hmm. all been in, I think we've all been, maybe it's just me when mm-hmm. I was I'm older than you guys, but I've been in the spinning barrels <laughs> in the fun houses and those like wacky barns with the, the steps. And do, we had so many moving parts in that set. It was phenomenal. And they were all, <laughs> they weren't VFX. They were all practically moving. So, well, they yeah. really transport you into the set, and I think that's why it's so impressive. But speaking about visual effects, there are some, and I know you've talked about yeah. the snow a little oh, bit yes. before. <laughs> how do you work with them, and how do you decide? I guess maybe will it mm. be cheaper to do visual effects or easier, or like how does that process work? Yeah, you know, it's funny in a film like Nightmare Alley, um, and the visual effects are essential and amazing. Uh, and Dennis Berardi, who's our head guy, is just does a phenomenal job. You don't even know half of what's the effects. Like you do if you stop and think about it, like the biting of the chicken. You know, they had to build a VFX chicken. We had a we had a robotic chicken, but these little mm-hmm. things, the snow enhancement, the sky enhancement. So he takes like basically they take everything that I do and make it that much better. You know. Yeah, so we had, like, I tend to like to do, 
present my own you know renders of certain things and sometimes they sometimes they land and sometimes they don't but with this vfx team at pretty instinct like i had proposed that we take the mansion so where we shot the gardens this is an existing garden we did a lot of dressing of, of snow and we embellished mm-hmm. the little what was a ice cream shack mm-hmm. at the back into this mausoleum with sculpted pieces and stuff and then I wanted the house wasn't really where the house was when we see it. And I really, uh, so I did a render myself. I just did a, a quick Photoshop of, I took a picture of the house that was on the property, but it's around the bend and behind a big forest of trees. And I put it there and I presented it to Guillermo and to Dennis, who's our VFX. I'm like, how does this feel you guys, you know? And, and it, you know, I get sort of, Oh yeah. Okay. Well, maybe. And then, and I sort of walk away, and that's my that's my contribution. And I'm I'm not a pushy broad or anything. Like I'm sort of okay, here's what I see, and there it goes in the film. So like they do work with me, but I don't always get that yes, yes, yes. But um, yeah, they're um, you know to me it's essential that relationship with VFX because you know I like that I'll sometimes design something into um, the, the filmscape or the visual bible. As a, as a starting point and they'll take over like for the burning shack we built that shack but we wanted it to have the, we specifically picked this spot to build it where the sun would set beautifully behind it and I was so excited we were, it was the day before filming I ran out and we were just doing the final dress on that shack a few little greens and little sticks around with bits of bushes and stuff and the sun was setting and I took about a hundred photos of the sun setting behind it and sent out a few saying, Oh my God, you guys, this is when you guys get here and it's going to be beautiful. And then it rained like all day. <laughs> and, and the VFX then, you know, said, uh, about those photos you took, send them all to us. And they, they helped, you know, I helped them get the right sunset where it should have been, um, but it wasn't there for us on the day. So raining and horrible, but they made yeah. it magic yeah. like it should have been. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Tamara, for being here with us today. At the end of our episodes, we just ask our guests, what's something you're wild for right now? It can be anything, a movie or TV show that you just watched, a book that you read, anything Mm -hmm. really. Well, despite the pandemic, I'm dying to get back to the theater. I rented and watched Dune, and I was very impressed (laughs) with that. Love that. And who isn't? <laughs> I don't know. That's my latest thing in terms of watching things. I've been reading this book called Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. I can't tell you why I'm rereading <laughs> it, but you can probably guess. And that's pretty much in my head and the most exciting thing in my in my oh, life right now, outside of finishing this show that I'm doing with Guillermo again. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, yeah, Tamara. Absolutely. Congratulations today again. Good luck with all your projects with thank Guillermo. You. I'm sure we'll be catching up with that soon. Okay. Fair enough. Thank, thank you, you guys. Take care. Nightmare Alley is out in theaters right now. We recommend checking it out. There's also a black and white version in some cities right now. And next time on Oscar Wilds, we will have our predictions for Oscar nominations. It's finally time. They're coming out February 8th. It's finally here. It's so soon. We're recording very early, and this is going to come out before BAFTA nominations. So if things are a little wonky, that's why. You can always check our website where we have all of our nominations updated. And also check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Oscar Wilde Pod. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. Bye.